1: Sunday night, I planned my outfit for Monday. I would wear a bright orange spandex unitard paired with a mustard-slash-orange-slash-hot pink zip-up shirt strongly resembling a wetsuit. Why hadn't I ever worn this color combo before? The hot pink really brought out the rosy hue of my pale skin. I loved how the unitard clung to my lanky frame, giving me an androgynous look, as the skin-tight nature of the outfit really accentuated my lack of cleavage. I would look just like a freckled David Bowie. This outfit was going to be the start of my new social standing. As usual, my parents had left for work by the time I caught the bus to school. There was no time to get a second opinion on my ensemble. Not that I would have asked for it, since it was clearly the most fantabulous outfit ever known to man. I could even get double use out of my new orange unitard if I wore it to modern dance class. This was money well spent. I walked proudly into school strutting my stuff as I imagined David Bowie did when he first took the stage as Ziggy Stardust. If people were going to stare at me for being ahead above all, at least now I knew I was giving them something to stare at. For once, I welcomed the feeling of all eyes on me. I was ready for my new, happier, more fashion-forward life. New look, new year, new me. I strolled down the east wing, towering over everyone as usual, but this time I stood up straight and with confidence. Everyone looked at me and whispered, and I imagined they were all talking about new Margot. Suddenly I felt a clammy hand aggressively grab me by the arm. Come with me, said my petite gym teacher sternly. What did I do? I asked genuinely confused. I had recently seen a special on PBS about the assassination of JFK and was fascinated by Lee Harvey Oswald's famous claim. I'm a patsy. Watching him say this to camera was invigorating as I wondered if perhaps he was a patsy and more was afoot at the grassy knoll. I also, dare I admit this, found and still find Lee Harvey Oswald to be kind of cute. So I was inclined to believe his claim of being a patsy. That being said, As this nag of a woman grabbed my arm, I hope my call of what did I do was played as effectively as my main man Oswald's performance had been.
0: Margot Lightman is a four-time winner of the Moth Story Slam. She's a regular on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Her new book is Gawky, Tales of an Extra Long Awkward Phase. (laughs) Thank you for joining me, Margot. Thank you. This is such a wonderful book and you find such a great voice oh, in it.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you. I worked very hard on it and I'm glad you I'm glad you liked it.
0: Now one of the things that interested me, you're a performer, you tell stories live, you yeah. perform live, you write for performance. Talk about the difference between creating okay. a prose voice yeah. that reads like something we hear and performing the live voice that we do hear.
1: It's a huge difference. I had to take classes in learning the difference because I really thought I could take my stories that I did for the stage, print out the scripts I used for those, and sell it as a book. And it was completely night and day. I mean, those stories are geared for less is more. Try to get it all in in under five minutes before you get the light or whatever. And then for a chapter of that, that five-minute story was about two and a half pages and then I'd have to make it a chapter of a book so I had all of these things that people naturally see when they get on stage that I had to convey like uh, a height or the way I looked or the way I feel about things you know I didn't have any facial expressions to convey anything and that was hard so I had to go back and describe everything in great detail
0: one of the things I think that interests me in this book is uh, the plot arc because you mm-hmm. have a nice plot arc that, that reads to all the way through. Yeah, Talk about creating that out of these, again, sketches and out of the yeah. the parts of your own life.
1: Yeah, well, there's all of these things in the book that seem sort of like subplots that end up culminating in the end, which is a lot of fun for me. And how did I, the question is, how did I come to the arc in mm-hmm. my life? Uh, well. There's things like there's a whole subplot here of dance that has a big payoff at the end. And that's something that in my daily life I joke about and talk about constantly. I mean, every time we're at a a party or something and I'm on the dance floor, everyone's going, oh, Margot's doing her modern dance moves again or like, let it go and things like that. So things like that started to become a reoccurring theme in my life. Uh, became reoccurring themes and arcs in the book so that or um, the clumsiness it's just something that plays out in my daily life constantly in the height and feeling weird about that and, and tim- like <laughs> feeling, feeling like I have to acknowledge that I'm giant when I when I step on stage I sort of acknowledge that when i you know in the beginning of the book so it's kind of everything that was fun issue in my life I put into the book as well.
0: You have a, a great gallery of characters in this book, yeah. and I'd like you to talk uh, about uh, finding those characters, you yeah. first and foremost, yeah. uh, writing about yourself and recreating yourself as a character in prose because it's not, you're not, this is not cinema verite, this no. is not uh, uh, walking around with a video camera aimed yeah. at your
1: face. Yeah, so to create myself as a character, Uh I wanted to make. I've spent a lot of time trying to make sure that I was a likable character um, and an underdog that people would root for and uh, someone that people would relate to. So, the book's inciting incident is that the it starts off with this growth spurt in fourth grade where I, you know, end the year at five foot six, which is completely a not normal thing for most kids and people. So if you didn't go through that, I had to figure out how would someone else relate to this? If they didn't feel awkward about their size and uncomfortable with that, how else would someone relate to this? And so then there were all these other things that made me an underdog that I felt like I didn't I didn't like the era I was born in, and I felt like I didn't really fit in with any of the people at school, and I felt like I didn't really blend in my town. And then those things combined made it something that most people could relate to one of those things. And then that sort of became the point of entry for the reader, and then they thought, okay, I'm just like her. I'll keep reading. I think if I had just pinpointed it only about size, that it would have alienated a lot of people that didn't have that issue.
0: When you started writing about your size, yeah. uh, it's really fun to read, and you, you get us into your perception, and I'm wondering if, as a person of greater height, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, could talk about the the problems that you encountered f- just from the very beginning yeah. is the way people would see you as being older than yourself. Yeah,
1: it was really hard. I mean, there's and, and I mean there's and I say this in the book that there's so many worse things that someone could happen to someone. I'm not saying that my life was horrible, but things like being at the gymnasium and somebody saying, "Why do you hang out with those girls so much younger than you?" and meanwhile they were the same age as me, if not a few months older, or things like yeah, just being treated differently. I mean, the kids were still getting piggyback rides, and I was, and if I, and nobody could lift me beyond age of like uh, maybe four, you know, and so things like that. I mean, I describe myself as the girl forever in the bottom half of a chicken fight, and I think, and that's one of the titles that I wanted to use, and they thought it was too too specific, but I wanted it to be gawky Tales from the lower half of a chicken fight, but I think that eventually it just. <sighs> it it, it culminated into I had to laugh at it after a while because eventually it became comfortable in my own skin. But then new problems arose. Like, right as high school, I started to become comfortable in my own skin. And then I got braces on as everyone was getting them off. And then I had all these problems with my teeth and retainers with removable teeth on them and missing teeth. And that began once the height sort of faded out. So it never ends. (laughs)
0: Uh, One of the problems with your height was that, in being perceived older than you were, was that sometimes... uh, people would perceive you in a sexual manner that yeah. was completely inappropriate yeah. and accuse you of being inappropriate. Yeah,
1: like I talk about page, you know, page turning, wanting to turn the pages on the music bench with my music teacher and him putting me in a separate seat because he didn't want people to get the wrong idea. And it's such a weird, it's like wrong idea. I don't like you. I'm the same age as the girl that sat next to you on the bench two minutes ago. I just want to p- turn the pages with you. And, it, it, and it's a weird thing. Or I remember really specifically being on the, um, the monkey bars and uh, like hanging hanging on the monkey bars upside down the way all the kids did and I was pulled off and said you know don't do that the boys will get the wrong idea if your shirt rides up and meanwhile all the other little girls were, were doing it but it was I couldn't do it because I was I looked older I was the same age as them everyone's playing on the monkey bars there's nothing wrong with what I was doing so I remember re- and this is a really long time ago that these incidents happened, and I remember them really vividly of like I, but I, I I'm just being a kid doing what kids do. So, yeah.
0: You get do a great job uh, of portraying uh, life as a kid uh, mm. and be, putting us in the kid's eye view, especially a yeah. uh, kids. What's interesting is that you're writing as, as an adult about being a kid who's perceived as older than she is. So yeah. that's a kind of an interesting uh, uh, conundrum for you, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And it, so it's things like my mother pointed out a part that she really liked that is sort of nails that, which is when I say that there's this In the one of the early chapters, I come into contact with this bank teller, and I say that he's going to work the next day counting piles of money, which is what he does. And that's what I thought that bank tellers did. You know, they just like were dealing with just mountains of money all day, and they were really rich. And that's what I thought of them. I had no idea, so I I put a lot of that into there, and was really careful to make sure that the childlike voice stayed in the childlike chapters, and then going on into the high school, and then very very first few months of college to keep those voices that I had, and my voice in college became completely pretentious, but
0: that's what I was like, so I tried to keep it true. It's a lot of fun to read, and it's fun to see those modulations, Yeah. and I really enjoyed, too, the way you created the kind of the the stream of friends and the way that changes through the years. Yeah. I thought that was really nice, and you do a good job of balancing the kind of the touching aspects of friendship. Yeah. with the, the you know, kind of goofy parts of just being a kid.
1: Yeah, I, I and it's funny because this book, uh, the car- the girl I call Amanda in this book, who's in the, for my childhood friend.
0: I like Amanda. I She's love like, You have a lot of friend- fun with her. I
1: do, and writing this, you know, we fell out of touch just as people do, and it's sort of put us back in touch. I, my mother read it and said, you have to get this book to, I, I won't say her real name, but Amanda, and I, uh, and I, emailed, I found her online and I emailed her and I said, I'm going to send this to you. And um, and she wrote me back and said, you know, I'm going through a hard time right now and this is making me laugh so hard and, like, reminding me of such funny times in my life that this I couldn't thank you enough. So I, 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 what I did was I, I um, compressed each... Um, Like I just had one friend be the friend in middle school, one in elementary school, one in high school, and then one in college to just keep things so people could get attached to those characters rather than introducing a bunch of other people. So I just kept everything with a singular friend to symbolize those eras, but they're all real people.
0: And that leads me to another question, because I've heard a a lot of writers talk about the idea of creating composite characters Mm -hmm. out of multiple people, but I've never actually asked about that process.
1: Well, Amanda is, all of those stories are true that happened with her. Alyssa for the middle school are all true that happened specifically with her, and the high school friend of Jackie Angel, all of those things happened with her. Uh, The composite characters in the book are the two sort of bullyish characters of Chad Decker and Jessica Rosenstein are composite characters believe me there was more than one person that picked on me (laughs) Uh, but I decided to make it one guy and one girl that way they could be throughout the whole book Uh, but those are composites of a bunch of different people that had had (laughs) something (laughs) against me I just felt like I didn't want to be you know, whether there's four different guys or, or five different girls to get to know one bully I thought would be easier for the reader and you could keep the characters straight
0: uh, one of the things I think that's interesting too about um, the the bully characters is yeah. we have a little bit of sympathy f- with them cause, yeah. because you we're seeing them all from a child's point of view and yeah. we know they're just children too and yeah. I think that's an interesting technique you use.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I in the end I'm sure that you know the bunch of people that they're based on grew out of that. I hope. But bullying is something that's so talked about now that mm-hmm. I figured uh you know it's been going on throughout the years that there's I mean you think that the little kid is the one getting bullied meanwhile it's the kid that's a foot taller than everybody if you're a girl that's getting that's also in my uh, world was getting bullied so bullying's a universal thing and and I it was a I um still have small issues with it like when there are certain things that will trigger and make me remember things as kids said to me as a kid like one thing that comes to mind is and I live in LA which is a very stupid uh not that Ellie is stupid, but something I don't like about it is the um, concentration on physical appearance that's so, you know, vital there. And I had a teacher in an acting class uh, tell me that I had terrible style and I didn't know how to dress, which reminded me so much about that fashion intervention that the girls had with me in seventh grade in the book. And it really affected me so much more than it would have somebody else who's like, ah, my acting teacher thinks I should get some new clothes for auditions. For me, it was like, I'm back in seventh grade. I'm back in that living room where all the girls are telling me I'm a terrible dresser, and that I, I have that I'm never going to make, you know, I'm never going to get a boyfriend. And that's what it felt like to me. So it definitely has some residual effects, and I'm still affected by certain things, specifically when people make fun of uh, clothes, because I, there's a lot more in, than I wrote about it in the book that happens with that, with the bullying, with that up until my last few days of high school, yeah.
0: You can rest assured that all the bullies—if they're men—they're working as used car dealers <laughs> or real estate salesmen. If they're yeah. women, they're working at department stores.
1: Well, if you read the very last line of of my my book, I say in the in the acknowledgments, the last line I say, and to the girl. This is the very last line of the entire book. And to the girl who waited at my locker every day of high school to threaten me to various degrees based on how much of a freak you thought I looked like, well, what's the use? You're not reading this anyway. I forgive you. I hope you're a nicer person now because it would be impossible for you to have gotten much worse. I mean, that's the last line in the acknowledgments, <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I feel. I mean, you, you waited every day for me to get to school, and you had nothing better to do than to wait at my locker and threaten me about my outfit. Crazy, so,
0: yeah. Oh, it's interesting, too, the way that you uh, portray girl culture in here. And I think this is an interesting aspect of look at uh, girl culture in suburban America because you're not, your parents aren't rich and famous, and you aren't rich and famous yet. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about creating that feeling of the solid suburban middle class.
1: Well... That's what I grew up in, um, and so I have no other point of reference but that that's what I know. Uh, and it is funny because nobody had any money, you know, any more money than anyone else, and nobody had any fame or fortune to, to in fact, uh, have any basis to be a snob. And it's, so it's interesting that people still were, and it was based on really simple things, like follow this uniform, wear this uniform, act like this, like this song, like this food go to this place and then you're cool and if you distray stray from any of it then you're not and I don't think that's any different now than if you don't wear this or have this cell phone or or have this nail polish or whatever that you're not cool it's just the trends are different but they were seem to be like a cool girl uniform and if you didn't wear it you were out I mean there was a there was a time that it was you if you had your braces it was cool but if you had your braces beyond that, you weren't cool. I mean, it's, it's insane, <laughs> but uh, it's suburbia. I don't know what the cool standards are like in, in, in places where there is money. I can only imagine it's much different than for us, but we measured coolness by like who had the best cassette singles or who had the best colored rubber bands on their braces and who had uh, you know, the nicest Umbro shorts, which was what, what people were wearing at the time. I had none of those things,
0: <laughs> it wasn't cool. Well, no, but I, I think what you you were actually you were ahead yeah. of your time, and, and well I like behind the times. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the uh, the portrait of you as uh, you know uh, you were a budding artist from the beginning, yeah. I, and uh, I I loved the uh, the wham uh, you. <laughs> the <laughs> I wham fought for story. that to be the opening chapter. <laughs> it was
1: an initially the opening chapter, and then they took it out, and then I put it back in, and I was like, it's relevant because it sets the tone of that. What happens is that I. I want to become a musician in the first chapter which I have a, about a 1000 goals in this book that none of them come true but in the beginning I think I'm going to be a music a music star and so I write lyrics to a song which are pretty good for a fourth grader but then I, I'm not talented enough to come up with a rhythm so I come up I steal Wham's Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go and I set the song to that but I really truly believed that I would either become a music music star from it or that I would get caught and become, you know, like a Lee Harvey Oswald again and be infamous. But that either way, people, I would make a mark. And what happens is that nobody cared. Nobody noticed that I stole the song. Nobody thought the song was that good. My mother didn't care. My father and brother didn't even come to see the performance. They, they were busy. And my mother, <laughs> like, as I said during the performance, I had never seen her eyes drier in my life. Like, she just was not moved. Nobody cared. And it was this little cry for help that, to, to make my mark. And no one cared, and I do feel like that sets the tone of who this character is—is is trying to make their mark in the world as an artist and fighting for someone to care. Yeah.
0: And, well, and this is something that carried through, you know, your entire the, yeah. the entire uh, timeline of this yeah. book. And I think it's interesting the way that we see it change and grow, and yeah. it's fun to trace that. <laughs> and, and I'm wondering if you talk about creating the kind of ebbs and flows that. Uh, that create a plot tension that keep the pages yeah. turning because we really want to find out what's going to happen to you.
1: Well, I think that the, the the major dramatic question of the book is is she ever going to find a place where she belongs and is she ever and more so than that is she ever going to be comfortable in her own skin. And so that's what we're trying to figure out is oh she doesn't belong at this camp. She oh she belongs briefly at this camp but this camp and so then it's over. So she has 3 weeks where she fits in and then she's back in high school. So I, I I just wanted to keep people instead of it being selected essays that could all stand alone for it to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I had to make sure that all of these things that uh, uh, were peppered throughout finally came to a climax at the end, and that they do, and that they all. But the problem is, it's real life. So in real life, there's no true resolution that everything's going to be okay at the end. So that was what was interesting for me: is that I had to end it and. I, I am still gawky at the end of this, and I'm still going through an awkward phase, but it's okay at the end. And that was really hard for me to, to weave that whole structure throughout and have it really build.
0: This book is filled with all sorts of great episodes from your life, and it's really fun to read them and think about them. And, and one of the things that struck me as I was reading this book was how much we learn from popular culture and really cheesy popular culture. <laughs> Yeah. General Hospital and The oh, Simpsons. I mean, love, you know, those are yeah. those are our uh, <laughs> those are our watchwords. Those are Plato and Socrates. You know, <laughs> I
1: wonder now: are we going to learn as much from pop culture? But I think we do. I think we're really influenced by it, no matter what time period it is. I mean, Beyonce's having I mean, a baby. The world is stopped. I mean, the world stopped dead in her our tracks for that. I mean, I think that that it it's always so ridiculous that this is where we're learning things from but it's true I mean I had my principal talk to us about the lessons of morals and in, in society based on The Simpsons I mean that's what he came in to talk to us about and I think he was trying to be cool and relate but uh, I I I don't think it's any different now. I think a lot of these things read true. Like, I wonder, I don't know, it's not really being marketed till, to the young adult crowd, but I think a young adult would actually really enjoy this
0: book. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I, they should. Yeah. I mean, this is this is right up, I think, the young adult alley. <laughs> I
1: you <laughs> know, you know, some of the stuff, it never, it, I think it always happens. Like, my, my husband was telling me that when he was a kid on the bus, he used to do these things, I forget what it was called, but it was like you'd put one song and it would mash into another. So it went, um, come... It went. They would sing, Come on, Feel the Uptown Girl, all night long, and they combine the three songs, right? Uh-huh. And my mother goes, Oh, we used to do that on the bus for me, and my mom's in her 60s. She goes, We used to sing, Catch a Falling Star and Put It in Your Pocket. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like, which makes me laugh that kids are still doing the same things on the bus when there's a 30 year age difference between the two of them. But they did the exact same thing of the bus songs mashing them together. And I'm sure kids are doing that on the bus right now.
0: They're sampling them on their iPhones. Yeah, but they're still doing it. <laughs> yeah. You know,
1: they're still doing the same thing. And so I think that pop culture has always been around me. My, my mom's generation too. Yeah.
0: And I, I really enjoyed the themes of um import of music in your life and the way all the yeah. songs are woven through here because it, it works on two levels it helps take us back to that time and create the feeling of that time yeah and also uh it gives us an idea of you know insight into your uh development as an artist
1: yeah i was really really when i f- looked at my father's record collection it was really changed things and i mm-hmm. talk about something embarrassing happened to me at school and i Played hooky the next day, and I just listened to my dad's records, and it was a real big um, therapy for me, and it always has been. I'm a really huge fan of music. Unfortunately, I have no musical ability, but I am a huge fan of, of classic rock and southern rock, and it really influenced a lot of the way I dressed, and the the I have song lyrics in my head at all time of things that you know I feel like symbolize moments all the time, like someone was talking about the struggle of, of life and I the other day I went, oh, and the road goes on forever, which, was, <laughs> which is which is a, a line from uh, Midnight Rider by the Allman Brothers, but I just I just say it in casual conversation constantly. Nobody knows what I'm talking about, but to me <laughs> it always makes sense. And uh, I'm, I mean, my son is Levon after Levon Helm, the drummer from the band. I mean, I'm, nobody, nobody people keep calling him Levon and sounding like LeBron James, the, the football I think footballer, I don't even know what, what Sport he plays, but nobody knows who the reference is, and I don't care. You know, I mean, that's 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 no, that's that's my generation. I I know, yeah, you do. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Everyone keeps calling him LeVon, and I'm like, (laughs) they think it's like LeBron.
0: (laughs) It's interesting, too. I think you do a good job of writing about your sexual development, Mm. and this is something that's tough, must be tough to write about, yeah, in a way that's honest, funny, and. (laughs) You you do a good job of writing the line between embarrassment and you know yeah. terror.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because the that's it's a lot of the things that were not initially in the book are the things that people are responding the most to, which is so much fun. So there's a whole chapter about me you know just i think discovering sex and through a bobby brown music video and i think it's such an essential chapter and there it was is. one reviewer one reviewer that said they didn't know why that chapter was in there and i was like are you kidding me it's like what changes me from a kid to to a, a teenager yeah uh, absolutely it's, it's, so it's puberty
0: in a perfect in yeah, a perfect chapter exactly
1: i mean that's when i ent- and it's so funny because i know so many people that's of my generation that say you know which music video it was for me? Madonna's Cherish. Or they go, you know, which video, music video made them discover sex? Or it, it was Motley Crue, or it was this, or it was that. And I think it's a, there was a specific thing to people that grew up in the music video generation that they saw a video and they went, wow, oh my god. And, and it changed. It, they discovered their whole sexuality through it. And I think it's, it's something that people now with YouTube and everything, that's not how they're discovering it. But um, it was a place and time that needed to be talked about.
0: And it's important too uh, to always remember the deep and meaningful things that happen to us in the school cafeteria,
1: Horrible. because
0: it's just it,
1: and it never it, ends. I go to college, and I have a, like the last chapter. I have the most humiliating moment in the, in the cafeteria when I talk about the internet. I have I think three or f- three or so th- humiliating things that happen in the cafeteria, and then I remember writing this book and I had a line in it that said I was so sick of sitting alone in the cafeteria every day eating my lunch and my editor came back with a note she's like can you fix this I think you mean at home and I go no I mean in the cafeteria she goes so you mean that you ate alone for the all of junior year and I was like I'm sorry that you don't, like, you're you're struggling with what, like, you cannot wrap your brain around it, but yes. Like, she thought it was an error. It's like, it's not an error. It was my life. I'm sorry, but that's what happened. So, uh, and my mom remembers that year so vividly, junior year, all year by myself in the cafeteria. But, I, I mean, that, and then it never ends. And then I go to college, and then there's the cafeteria becomes the dining hall, and then I have a humiliating moment there with the boy I like, and it just it never ends. Yeah.
0: And I think as a writer, what's interesting to see is the way that you in, un, in change not only the the prose level, but also you give us an idea of how much more you understand about things as, or what's going on around you mm-hmm. as you grow up with your prose. And I'd like you, did you, these came from stories, that, uh, pieces that you performed, right?
1: Almost everything, yeah.
0: Now, as you uh, rewrote these, did you uh, go through and, um, once you put them together, and change the prose to reflect that? Yeah,
1: I mean, there were a few chapters that I was able to cut and paste a little bit from my written uh, stories for the stage into, but very little. I had to change the prose almost entirely on everything. Uh, The... um, Virtually every chapter has been performed in some way or another on the stage, which is interesting, Um, with the exception of the prom. I think the prom chapter is the only chapter I've never performed on stage for no reason at all, just it happens to be that way. So, no, I had to kind of start from scratch and look at those scripts that I had for the stage and then completely change them to write them, yeah.
0: Did you write them out? Did you perform them in order? I mean, when you started doing this, did you... You know,
1: things were performed, and then, I mean, that's initially how I got attention to be, for industry to be interested for me to write a book, was from through my performing. A lot of the stories had been performed on stage in no order whatsoever, mm-hmm. and the, the last chapter, or second to last chapter about discovering the internet at, way after the internet had been invented, and not knowing what it was, and being embarrassed in front of people with that, um, was a story that I had recently started telling on stage. And that ended up being a part of the book sort of at the tail end, because it was working so well on stage of this story of this girl discovering the internet about six years after <laughs> after it was invented, and, and like not being able to wrap my brain around how amazing it was, and embarrassing myself in front of people, like telling, have you heard of this thing? And everyone's heard of it but me, and everyone's been using it for six years. Uh, that was something that was working so well on stage, I thought this has to go in. So um, th- some of the things worked so well on stage, there were a last-minute addition. Some things I'd been performing for years, and I knew that they worked, and some things, very few of them had never been performed on stage, but they worked well on paper. So it, it's kind of a hodgepodge.
0: You write uh, characters and create characters for yourself on Conan O'Brien. Yeah. And, and I'd like you to talk about uh, the difference between creating those characters and creating the characters for this book and that kind of writing? And well,
1: I worked for Conan in New York, not not in the L.A. show, but when I was in New York and they wrote uh, a bunch of characters that I ended up doing and then one of them became a reoccurring character that, <laughs> like, that the audiences really loved. But those were all written for me. No, I didn't create them, but I guess I added to them what they needed in order to keep coming back. But I didn't write any of those. Oh, you didn't write those? No. Oh, okay. No.
0: That's just, so that's just the, by virtue of your performance, then.
1: Yeah, there was one character that was supposed to be a one-shot deal, and I ended up doing that character about eight times. <laughs> and then, you know, they made an, her an action figure, and she was in all you know all these Best Of episodes and things. So that was a lot of fun.
0: There's, there's, there's an <laughs> I didn't know there was an action figure. Well,
1: somewhere. They didn't so. sell it. They made it on the show, yeah, uh-huh. and they had it on the show.
0: Well, don't worry. With 3D printing, you'll be able to get it off the web pretty Could you soon. you imagine? I know. <laughs> it will <won't> be hard. <laughs> Do you think that we'll see a second uh, sequel to this book? Because I I'm so. imagining that, <laughs> given uh, what you describe at the very beginning of uh, yourself as pregnant, and yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I can see a second set of essays well, and performances. Well, I
1: purposefully ended the book at age 19 for mm-hmm. that reason. Um, and, and, I mean, this is definitely a book about childhood and teenage years, and uh, so it ends at the end of my teens. I would love to. I would absolutely love to. We'll see what happens. We'll see how well it does, and if there's a demand, I would. I, I have tons of stories that I do on stage from not over the age of 19 that could definitely fit together into a book. And then I have this new chapter in my life of, of you know, I've just moved to L.A. two years ago, and I am... Um, Just had a baby, so my life is really different than it was two and a half years ago even, so.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, one of the things I think I really liked was the the, uh, chapter on the religious parties that (laughs) –
1: Yeah, yeah, the religion, well, bar mitzvahs and confirmations. Yeah, I was really into the cake Mm because my mom gave me these disgusting cakes with like a homemade glaze on them. And no, I wanted that sugary, disgusting frosting. And eventually, it pays off for me because a few chapters later, I get a job in a bakery and then I can eat all I want of it. But uh, the religious, uh, I grew up in a really diverse town. And um, and that's one thing that I loved about my town is that there's all different religions all different races all different economic. not I mean nobody was really wealthy but there it went from mm, maybe upper middle class not really down all the way to to blue collar and and that's the way the town was so it was so diverse that I ended up at all of these different religious ceremonies and I never had one myself but or parties and things and as an observer having no point of reference for it it was amazing to me to watch these things i mean just to, i mean i talk about going to the confirmations being thrilled that all these girls can wear these white dresses any time of year beyond labor day and that's so cool to me and then i go to the bat mitzvahs, and everybody's in these puffy things and playing these games and getting all this money and it's amazing to me but i don't i have i had no concept of the religious training that went into it or anything i just seemed like crazy parties to me.
0: <laughs> it's kind of a cultural anthropology, almost. Yeah, yeah. From, a, from the perspective of a teenager, which is a... <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, I was a viewer and a lot of these things. Every, it's, it was basically every kid had one, mm-hmm. one or the other, except for me. So I went to a ton of them, but I didn't have one. So I had sort of a fly-in-the-wall feeling
0: about it all. And, and it's interesting, too, that, the, that you came of age uh, during the time of AIDS, which mm. uh, allows for some some really interesting misunderstandings. Oh
1: gosh, yes. I mean, it was insane how terrified I was of it, and it's weird because a lot of the kids I went to school with weren't as scared of AIDS as I was because I think I there was something neurotic in me that 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 triggered when I, we had these assemblies all the time where people would come and talk to us about the risk dangers of AIDS and things like that. And I guess no one else was paying attention. But I I interpreted from them that I would, I could basically, like, trip, skin my knee, and then somehow I would get AIDS. Like, and then I would be dead in a week. Like, I mean, that was what I thought. It was just, you know, if, if I bled in the wrong place, I was going to die. And I truly believed that up until an abnormally late age.
0: <laughs> well, you also um, had... Uh Anemia. Yeah. <laughs> Which
1: is nothing major.
0: <laughs> Which is nothing major, but it, it was portrayed that way. It
1: was because my friend, for some reason, thought I said I had leukemia and spread this rumor around school that I had leukemia. And the weird thing was, for the day that everyone had thought I had leukemia, I loved it because everyone was so nice to me and everyone was so sweet and hugging me and telling me how good it was to see me. And then at the end of the day, when I found out what happened, I was—I had to clear up the rumor. But at the same time, I thought, oh, this is what it, this is what it feels like to fit in here. All right, but <laughs> at what cost? But yeah, it was just simply anemia, and I just took some iron pills and it went away.
0: One of the things I think that's interesting, too, is the, the way you portray your family. Yeah. Uh, so talk about the, your relationship with your mother as we see it in this book.
1: Yeah. I, my mom loves that she is the supporting, best supporting actress in this book. I mean, she is over the moon and it's because my father at the time it's written about a very specific time where my brother's only present for the very beginning because he goes off to college he's four years older than me so and then my uh father at the time was commuting to new york city and he wasn't home until 9:30 at night so i barely saw my dad and my brother was away at school so my mom was just the only one there for a lot of this stuff so she ends up being present in like and major roles in all of these stories, and she is a, she's pretty much uh, I feel like this is dead on of what she's really like and when she read it and the fact that she laughed and was not insulted at all and completely amused and it makes me feel like, yeah, I think I really nailed her she's she's an eccentric person
0: <laughs> and, and I think this is true throughout the book <clears throat> that it's clear that For the most part, you really like everybody you're writing about. And that's what enables you to talk about embarrassing, upsetting, uh, deeply personal incidents in a manner that's that's charming as opposed to upsetting.
1: Yeah, I really do. That's a great observation. I really do like all of the people that are the supporting characters in this. I mean, uh, there was something at the end that I took out because... There, uh, about something that happens at the very beginning of college and the person that in the other party involved in it I just really do not like the person and I realized that it wasn 't working because i wasn 't writing it from a humorous place because I 'm still sort of upset about X, y, and z that had happened between us and I realized this isn't no matter how funny the incident is because I do not find like i, I don't don't care for this person it 's not going to come off as funny it 's going to come off as as, as Bitter or nasty, and I took it, the entire section out. So that's true. I could only kind of write about these people that I really liked in a funny way because I did like them so much. It's almost a
0: celebration of them. And the what's nice too is the the length of the the chapters. Hmm. And I'd like you to just talk about pacing the yeah. chapters, each chapter within itself, figuring out what goes there, and then pacing You know, taking us from one to the other.
1: Well. I'm hoping, for the bigger picture, that it reads like a television show, and you can see each chapter as, as an episode, and that would be the next goal, for, or is to hopefully sell this as a series. So that was intentional in, in, tor- in oh, order to okay. do that.
0: Yeah and then um, sure you could absolutely yeah. there you go it's a, a mini series you know yeah. limited in length series that's yeah. two seasons or maybe <laughs> yeah two seasons oh you've got I mean look you've got the action plan for me ready
1: to go but yeah. that was that was. Uh, some of the chapters were longer at first and I, I liked breaking them up into stories that stood on their own um, so there's There's a bunch of things, uh, sort sort of towards the middle, there's some stuff that happens involving uh, rock concerts. And that was initially one chapter, but there were four incidences in it. And I decided, let's break it up. Let's make it smaller so you can kind of wrap your brain around it and end it at a natural point. So I wanted them to each to read as a story on a specific topic. And I think it does now, but that took a lot of editing, a lot. I mean, there was so much editing
0: that went into this from the original. Well, I love the rock concert stuff because, (laughs) you know, when you're at that age, attending a rock concert has just a certain feel that you won't experience afterwards and you won't experience before. It's a very unique experience. I think you really managed to convey that, that atmosphere.
1: I mean, I think when I, by the time, I was finished with college. I'd been to over a hundred rock concerts. I mean, I, I went so many in high school too, so many. It was just my escape because I could go see those bands from my father's heyday that, that, that they were all still around and still touring at the time. So I would go and see the Almond Brothers or Santana or or you know people of his generation, and it and it was just amazing. Yeah.
0: Have you? I mean, have you pitched this? This seems like you should take this straight to HBO. It's <laughs> we're in the a, front-
1: we're I'm in the process of that. Yeah. I'm working, um, there's some people working on it with me and we're in the process of that, yeah.
0: Well, that sounds great. I've been speaking with Margot Lightman. Her new book is Gawky, Tales of an Extra Long Awkward Phase. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Tales from from the Bottom Half Half of of a Chicken chicken Fight. fight.
1: Alternate title, (laughs) alternate title. (laughs) Alternate title.
0: Thank you for joining me, Margot.
1: Thank you for having me.